in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, where we watch movies then talk about them. I'm your host, Brian Fry, and joining me today are my is my good friend, uh, Chad. Chad, how are you doing today? Doing great. Just come came off the Christmas holiday, ready to get back into some movies. Awesome, awesome, awesome. And uh, coming it to us from Chicago in uh, Illinois and the Cineverse Group, we have Eric Martin. How are you today? We're out and groovy. Excellent. Very nice. So uh, please, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about the uh, Cineverse Group. Well, actually, I'm the host of a, uh, a podcast. It's called Cineversary, and it's a monthly show in which we celebrate a milestone anniversary of a movie masterwork. So, uh, for example, the December podcast of my show is the 75th anniversary of It's a Wonderful Life, in which I interview film scholar Janine Basinger. Uh, I also talk to the head of Fathom Events about fathom's devotion to anniversary re-releases in in movie theaters so um yeah the format is uh you know it usually has to be like a milestone anniversary a 20th anniversary a 50th the 75th even a hundredth like for example next year we will get to the 100th anniversary of nosferatu the, the first vampire movie and uh, the january episode I switched it around. It was going to be Nosferatu, but now I'm going to focus on the 20th anniversary of the Fellowship of the Ring. And I've got Brian Sibley from uh, the UK joining me, who actually did arguably the greatest adaptation for radio in the modern age when he uh, co-wrote the BBC's Lord of the Rings radio series, which was just phenomenal. So, yeah, uh, I do the Cineversary podcast. I also uh, do a weekly film discussion group. We've been meeting since 2005, and in that group, we we take turns rotating movie picks among our members. We focus on one movie a week. We watch it, and then we talk about it. We used to meet in person. Now we just meet on Zoom because, of course, of the continued pandemic. Yeah, that's been going strong for a long time. And uh, if you want to check more out about what we do and our podcast and our movie group, you can listen to recordings of our group discussions there, too. But it's cineversegroup.com. It's C-I-N-E-V-E-R-S-E group.com. Awesome. That was going to be my next question was where to listen. It's interesting you bring up uh, BBC recordings, too, because I have recently been absolutely enthralled by the dramatized Jean Le Carré Nova, novels that the BBC did. Um, I got my hands on this uh, complete recordings thing, and I've been listening to them basically straight through. Mm, now, BBC, they are quality people. They they do fantastic radio in the modern age. And I'm a huge fan of old-time radio. Like I love stuff from the 30s, 40s, and 50s 
huge collector of that stuff, have been for a long time. So I really appreciate the ability of uh, people who work in that medium to really paint a picture for you and make images and stories come to life. And the ability for, for modern talents to do that is, is few and far between. It's, it's rare to hear a really good radio dramatization these days, but the BBC has been, BBC has been doing it for quite a while. Excellent. Excellent. So we're going to do a couple warm ups here. Eric, what's your favorite movie in Chicago based in filmed in around Chicago? Oh, wow. Mm, you hit me with a curveball here. I mean, the easy answer is something like the Blues Brothers or Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I'd have to think about it because there are a lot of other films that are set in and around Chicago sure. that I know I'm I'm just not thinking of at the moment. We're I mean, we're usually just looking for knee jerk reactions, but if yeah, you think of right. something later we can we can pop it in there. Yeah, I mean right now I would I would probably have to say the Blues Brothers only because it is an excellent movie. It's one of the greatest comedies of all time. It's just that I don't want to sound like the stereotypical of course, it's the Blues yeah. Brothers, but it might just be, you know. Yeah. Chad, Chad, did you come up with the same thing? What's your favorite Chicago movie? I don't think you can go wrong with Blues Brothers. I went with Candyman, though. Oh, that's a good choice, that's a great too. great one, yeah. I will mm-hmm. only say uh, it once, not to ruin the podcast. <laughs> I, uh, I I will continue to haunt Russell. Uh, my answer is Untouchables. Mm, yeah, that's, that's yeah. really good. It's up there for me, too. I, uh, Russell has a continuing difficult time understanding my Costner love, so uh, I, I just like to hit him with it every time I get a chance. <laughs> that's fair. Gotcha. And you can't go wrong with The Fugitive either. I mean, that's... Oh, yeah. That, that, that's, gosh, that's a good point. I didn't think of that one. God, you're yeah. right. You could just keep getting getting bombs dropped on you with this question. Chad, what's the last movie you saw? Last movie I watched was Gremlins. It is my holiday tradition. I watch Gremlins. Other people watch Die Hard. Some people watch It's a Wonderful Life. Me, you know, Stripe, Gizmo, that's where I'm at. Excellent. Eric? Well, I watch It's a Wonderful Life every Christmas season. It's I, I often juggle between when people ask what my favorite film of all time is. It's either It's a Wonderful Life. Citizen Kane or Star Wars A New Hope, which to me was like the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. Like that was my wheelhouse as an eight year old when that movie came out. So I'm dating myself a little, a little perhaps I'm, I'm a 53 year old man who never grew up. But yeah, I'm, between those three films, it, it juggles uh, as to which is my favorite. But so, yes, I just watched It's a Wonderful Life. But I got to tell you, I was a little impressed. I saw on Hulu they did a, uh, a new version of A Christmas Carol that came out a couple of years ago, starring Guy Pierce as Scrooge. Anybody seen this? It was pretty good. Wow. And they uh, they kind of uh, gave Mrs. Cratchit, Bob's wife, like a whole new major role in this retelling of the story. So it's okay. definitely a Me Too era kind of a re-envisioning, but it's still, it was still very, very impressive. See, we just dropped the Muppets Christmas Carol, so uh, mm. check that out. We will plug okay. that. Uh, I will say I'm I'm a Guy Pierce fan. It's uh it that that would be worth a watch for me. Yeah, definitely. I thought he was gonna say Guy Fieri for some reason because we keep <laughs> putting Food Network people into movies. Like Reed Drummond was in some random movie that my wife was watching. It's uh really yeah Guy Pierce is a much better option than Guy Fieri bringing us to Flavor Town. So today. We are going to be talking about 1969's Easy Rider, starring Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper, and Jack Nicholson. 
budget for this movie is four hundred thousand dollars. It grossed way more than that at forty one million seven hundred twenty eight thousand. Now, that's debatable uh, because uh, some sources say over sixty million dollars. So I think it's actually more than that, gentlemen. I, I wouldn't doubt it, considering I both bought the movie for this podcast and then couldn't get the disc to work in my Xbox and rented it for four ninety nine. Mm-hmm. So I have no doubt that this movie is making money hand over fist. And, and just as a bit of trivia, I don't know the exact ranking of where this falls, but it is considered one of the most profitable independent films ever made, like like right after Halloween or something like that. Paranormal uh, Activity and Blair Witch also. Right. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, it adjusted for, you know, today's dollars, it, it, that's a very impressive haul for for what they paid for the movie. All right. Well, it did it did place fourth in the box office that year. Ahead of it was Midnight Cowboy, another uh, cult hit, and uh, just behind it was Hello Dolly. Number one movie that year was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So right. it, that's a hard that's a hard one to top. Right. Uh, IMDb has this at a seven point three. Rotten Tomatoes critics say eighty three percent. Audience says eighty two. So we have a rare joining of the hands. It uh, got two nom- nods for uh, Academy Awards, Best Supporting Actor Jack Nicholson and Best Original Screenplay for Fonda Hopper and Southern. BAFTA gave it a nod for Supporting Role Jack Nicholson and one Golden Globe for uh, Best Supporting Actor in a Motion Picture. Do we feel like anything was missed in all of that? Did, did it get proper respect from the people? I think so. I mean, Jack Nicholson, pretty much every movie he winds up in, he gets nominated for. So, yeah, he was. But this is this is the film that really put him on the map. And that's this is no small point, because really, he he languished in obscurity for a long time as an actor. I mean, he was in a lot of uh, Roger Corman, super low budget, you know, cheapies, horror films and things like The Little Shop of Horrors. But he really didn't get his big break until this film and nobody thought that it was going to be a huge success so who knew but he steals this the show every scene he's in he absolutely dominates those scenes and he's so memorable but but it's really important to think without this film catapulting him you don't you, you know he doesn't get cast perhaps in uh five easy pieces the next year and and later you know chinatown and the last detail and one flew over the cuckoo's nest etc 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 this is the film that put him on the map. Yep, I I agree with that. And and Nicholson, I, one of the things that really shook me when I was looking up information about this film is I or uh, Henry Fonda's most recent photograph or Peter Fonda rather uh, most recent photograph on IMDb actually looks like Jack Nicholson. Interesting. So the whole time I was watching the movie, I was like, <laughs> Do they look alike? Maybe a little bit. But yeah, if you look up on IMDb, the little thumbnail mm-hmm. they have for Peter Fonda mm-hmm. uh, could easily, easily be mistaken for <laughs> Jack Nicholson. Yeah. But in answer to your question, your overarching question about, you know, was anybody passed over as far as Oscar nods or things like that? I don't know. Um, they didn't have all the categories they had today, but um, you can make a case for film editing, although it's a pretty trippy editing approach that they use. As far as acting, I think I think it's right. I think Nicholson is the one most deserving, even if it's just the, the sole acting nod here. Um, directing, this is a very experimental movie, and you know Dennis Hopper is you know the man given the credit for directing, but this really 
really is a joint production between Fonda and Hopper and Terry Southern. He's often forgotten about as far as the uh, third screenwriter, but he's actually the main screenwriter. And if you do a little digging and you learn a little bit more about this film, you read accounts that Dennis Hopper kind of became a credit hog and he tried to claim all kind like he came up with everything for this movie on his own. And that's unfortunate because he's giving short shrift to his collaborators. So my contention would be that this is definitely a, a you know, a, a Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper film as far as producing, directing, everything else, writing. But, yeah, um, I think that, uh, you know, the Oscars, they're not always fair, not always the most deserving film wins or gets nominated or, or the actors or, or, or crew. But uh, it feels about right to me in terms of uh, the two nominations. Chad, what do you think, man? Yeah, I none of this really surprises me with the screenplay. I I don't know if cinematography was around when this movie was made, but I Oh sure, sure. I mm-hmm. feel like that could possibly break in. You know, I I'd have to go back and revisit Butch Cassidy. Yeah, this is this is the great Laszlo Kovacs too, who's done so many fantastic. You know, you bring up a really good point. Now I'm going to read <laughs> rephrase what I said. I agree with you. I think I think it should have been nominated for cinematography. And for that matter, you know, when you think of 1969, I don't have the list in front of me, gentlemen, do you? But what other films were nominated? I'm sorry, it's Midnight Cowboy, Z, Anne of the Thousand Days, Hello, Dolly, Butch Cassidy, and the Sundance Kid. My opinion, yeah, Z's a pretty quality movie, but Hello, Dolly, Anne of a Thousand Days, no. Come on, man. Midnight Cowboy deserves the win there, in my opinion, because it's a masterpiece. But absolutely, Easy Rider, even if you're not a fan of the movie, I mean... It should have been nominated that year for Best Picture. I'd agree with that. I, I Out of that list, I definitely think it should have been in there. But I think, that, you know, like you said, any any given year, I can find a movie that I like better than one of the nominations. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, totally. a hundred, it's a hundred percent. I'd say it's probably the, you know, one of the few constants in film that <laughs> you could ask anybody who's even a, a mild a lover of film and they'll be like, mm-hmm. yeah, I could find something I like better than blank insert film here. Chad, had you seen this movie before? No, I, I was telling Eric before you joined, this seems like a movie that, you know, growing up you or one of our friends would have had on in the background. This just seems in the same vein of the movies that you guys would Russell would go to sleep to. <laughs> he would get halfway through the movie and fall asleep. It seems exactly like that movie. So no, this was a first time viewing for me. I did have some like vague. It was a first time view for me as well. So uh, it was uh, it it had some points where you're definitely reminded of the fear and loathing of in Las Vegas's of the world, which was something we had on quite a bit when we were younger. That's exactly um, what I went to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, just the vibe of it in general. I do want to speak to one other thing that Eric brought up that I didn't know about Uh, Hopper trying to steal some of the thunder of this movie. The entire time I watched this film, I felt like that's what Dennis Hopper was trying to do. (laughs) And as soon as Jack Nicholson came on and stole the entire movie, I felt like the rest of the movie was Dennis Hopper flicking off a truck of rednecks because he didn't get his way so i don't know if if 
that just uh, if that had anything to do or if he had some of those feelings during the filming of this or not. But I do find that really ironic in the end that the the the, the vibe that I had this entire movie was something that that literally came to came to pass. Yeah, we'll definitely get into that. I, I'm I'm yeah. sure we'll talk about that here soon. From what uh, I understand, I, I, I'm not a historian. I don't have all the facts, details, trivia about the movie. But from what I remember when I did some research on it, a lot of the, the dialogue, a lot of the just kind of scenes are improvisational, right. like especially the campfire scene where they're talking about the Venusians and the outer space people, et cetera. I, from, from my recollection, Nicholson made that up on the spot and it's brilliant. But like, you know, you could tell that that a lot of this is just kind of verisimilitude. It's kind of like trying to capture something in the moment without over scripting, overthinking it. Now, there is a script they follow. Right. I mean, the, the the plot is something that they wrote. But again, I think that a lot of them kind of made things up as they went along. And that's certainly true, I believe, with Hopper. I just feel that he he tries a little too hard with this character. Oh, definitely. And, and, and I don't know, he just comes across as he, he's got a very unique look. He does. <laughs> they've got, they've yes. got unique names. They're, they're named after famous cowboys, you know, Wyatt Earp, Billy the Kid. Uh, we get it. But, you know, they're, they're modern cowboys, if you will. But I don't know. He's He's got a unique look. But he, he can be really, you know, kind of trippy dippy. And then other times he could be really aggressive and, and kind of, you know, uh, an angry character, and I don't know if that's the pot talking or the LSD or whatever. And, and gentlemen, presumably, they took real drugs while they were filming this, so they really were smoking marijuana. They they supposedly were really taking the drugs that they depicted in the movie. Uh, that's possible. That possibly means that they snorted a real coke in the early scene. That possibly means they took real LSD. And why not? Like if you're going to live in that character in that environment. I guess it makes sense. The LSD was fake, and Peter Fonda said the only reason they didn't actually do real coke was because they couldn't afford it. But they did okay. smoke over 150 joints on set, so yes. Yeah, so so some of the drugs were, were real, and some were not. And there's conflicting accounts. They've even gone back and kind of contradicted some things in, in subsequent interviews and yeah. definitely contradicted themselves. Hopper and, and Fonda are not really good friends after this film from what I gather and they have conflicting testimonies and accounts of some things that went on. So who knows the, the truth of a hundred percent accuracy of what, what they did and didn't do, but yeah, you could definitely tell they're smoking real pot. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Eric, I'm assuming you had seen this before. So what were your, your ex- expectations coming into it this time? Oh, no different than before. I mean, I, I really highly regard this film, but as I was, you know, telling Chad earlier, it's not like my favorite movie. It's not very high up there in my personal pantheon, but I respect the hell out of it because this is experimental filmmaking at its best. They're trying to capture the zeitgeist, and I think they do a really, really good job of it. It's just that it's a fil- it's a time capsule kind of a movie. It's not something that's necessarily going to speak to modern viewers. It's very dated in some of its sensibilities uh, and its trappings of the time, of course. So I didn't really bring anything to it other than a continued respect and appreciation for the filmmaking craft, which I think is still very strong. It is experimental and a little bit out there, like the flash forwarding where you get the kind of like 
if you, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but you see like uh, a little peek into the forthcoming scene that they'll kind of flutter back and forth with a few frames to kind of give a flash forwarding effect. And that that becomes a little bit overused throughout the film. But I guess it was meant to depict what it's like to be on acid or under hallucinogens or something like that. You don't see right. that kind of technique picked up by other filmmakers after Easy Rider. So it's not like it became some innovation. But again, I, I just really respect the commitment to, you know, capturing that zeitgeist and, you know, kind of imprinting in, in a 90 plus minute film what life was like for the counterculture for for that generation. And this this spoke to so many millions of people. You know, I wasn't this generation, but my parents were and they and their kind absolutely adored this movie. So some of it so, was was, you know, trying to understand, get in the heads of why. If I was alive at the time, why would this movie have spoken to me? That was intriguing to me. So when when did you see this? Like what age were you when you first saw this? Oh, God, I was I, I was actually uh, like 16. We decided to watch it uh, late night, like two in the morning or something on cable, a bunch of friends. Because again, it had it, its reputation preceded it. It was like, wow, I remember my parents talking the hell out of this movie. Let's check it out. It's all about drugs and sex and blah 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 blah. Yeah, it it is in a way, but it's not really what it's about. It's it's about much more than that, right? So we it was lost on us. It was gotcha. like, you know, it's like one of those movies that you heard something about, word of mouth, and it's disappointing on first viewing because you just you're not ready for it. You don't understand the context of it. So it really, you know, I, I I did study film in college, and that's when I really took a deeper dive and really understood a little bit better about what it was trying to do. It was uh, lost in translation for Chad and I. Mm. <laughs> Tough watch, gentlemen. <laughs> that movie just gets brought up a ton as, like, we don't get it. We we don't get it. And we're still angry about it. You mean the movie Lost in Translation? Yes. Oh, yeah. I thought you were just <laughs> riffing on a, a cliche uh, term there. Okay, gotcha. No, no, no. The uh, the Sofia Coppola Lost in Translation. I'll actually say, Chad, that I've gone back and watched it again recently, like in the last two years. It makes so much more sense now. I, like I, I I understand Bill Murray's character so much better not being a college, you know, a decade did a lot for me in understanding that movie. If I could share a uh, pearl of wisdom with you, gentlemen, my current guest on my Cineversary episode for December, I says ahead, was Janine Basinger, the great film scholar from Wesleyan University who just retired. Brilliant woman in film criticism and scholarship. And she said to me, you know, the movies never change. We change. So when you go back and you watch a movie for a second, third, umpteenth time, you're going to discover something different in it, and it usually has to do with you. Something in you has changed. So it's not the movie uh, that has changed at all. It's you. That's that's good advice because sometimes it's easy to dismiss something that upon first viewing. You, you just kind of say, eh, that didn't work. I, why did I waste my time? But m maybe if you revisit it, you'll come to it at a different place in your life, and it just things will click. Oh, yeah. Or, or the movie is Blade Runner, and they're coming out with yet another take on it. Well, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the George uh, special edition approach, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. 
So, uh, Chad, uh, did you enjoy this movie upon viewing it the first time? Enjoy is a strong word. I I watched it. I, this is a movie <laughs> where I I sat and once it was over, I was like, I I don't know. It was a burn after reading. What did I learn? Absolutely nothing <laughs> at the end. So, yeah, I... This is one I think I'm still thinking about. I I've been pouring over. I watched it before the Christmas break, so it's been maybe a week and a half or two weeks. And yeah, I I'm kind of with Eric of like yeah I I would recommend this, but I don't think I would recommend this in a way that I would say you're gonna love this. I I would just say this is an important movie, important cultural statement. Check it out. I, th- I think I can agree with most of that, uh, it being my first viewing. Like, I was aware of this movie's reputation, and I would say there's a point in time, and we'll discuss this later, where I, I thought I was getting it. Like, it was it was a small mountain that, you know, I was looking for, and I was just looking for something bigger than that, but... But I guess if that's got to be the point where I got it, it's where I got it. And I, I guess I just was I was constantly waiting for something a little bit bigger, if that metaphor makes any kind of sense. Oh, yeah. I, I think those are totally fair assessments, especially if it's your first watch, because this can be an obfuscation kind of exercise for a, 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 a virgin viewer, if you will. And again, we're, we are more than 50 years removed from the context, the time that this movie is set in and so much in, in America has changed. And yet I would argue that there are evergreen themes and, and, and messages in here that can still be taken to heart today. And if we have time, I'd love to get into some of those, which can perhaps better explain what they were aiming for Fonda and Hopper. And that I still believe can resonate if you open your mind to it. Yeah. Sure. Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to take a brief advertisement break here, and then we're going to get into a very spoil-filled plot summary. So if you have not watched the movie yet and you want to before listening, I strongly urge you hit pause and watch Easy Rider. Here is your advertising break. What happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up? You get the Classic Film Jerks podcast. Find the Classic Film Jerks podcast on all the major platforms. Welcome to the Flashback Flicks Retro Movie Podcast. I'm Ricky. I'm Grayson. And every week we review a movie from the past and reflect on things we missed, things we loved, and things we want to see again. Yeah, because we believe any movie worth watching is worth watching again. So if you like films, friendship, and a lot of callbacks, I mean, just so many callbacks, then subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever RSS feeds go for like-minded, movie-loving individuals. Thank you. All right. Welcome back, listeners. We now have that spoil, spoiler-filled plot summary for you. So, uh, Chad, why don't you give us a rundown of 1969's Easy Rider? Wyatt and Billy are a couple of motorcyclists who smuggle cocaine from Mexico to L.A. in order to have a fun road trip down to Mardi Gras in New Orleans. On their way, they pick up a hippie hitchhiker and visit the local commune. After spending a fun time at the commune, Wyatt and Billy say their goodbyes and race down to New Mexico, where they are arrested for parading without a permit, 
That's apparently a thing you can get thrown in jail for, at least in the 1960s. So they wind up in jail. There they meet and befriend local lawyer George Hansen, who's also spending the night in jail. That one for being in the drunk tank. George helps them get out of jail, and the three men head off to New Orleans. As they camp for the night, Wyatt and Billy introduce George to marijuana. The next day, they stop at a small town Louisiana diner and attract the attention of the locals. The girls think the men are dangerous but exciting, and the local, local fellas and police, they're not too fond of them. Wyatt, Billy, and George leave and set up camp outside of town, where they're attacked by the locals and George is unfortunately killed. Wyatt and Billy finally reach New Orleans and visit a brothel George had told them about, and they take two prostitutes with them through the festivities. They end up in a French Quarter cemetery where they ingest LSD. Wyatt and Billy then leave the next day and are passed by a local in a pickup truck. Billy gives the local the finger and is shot by the passenger with a shotgun. The truck then turns around and blows apart Wyatt's motorcycle with Wyatt still on it. The credits roll and we're left to consider the two's meaningless deaths. Excellent. Excellent. So how do we feel about the, the cast of this film? I know we've touched on, on Fonda and Hopper's uh, kind of idiosyncrasies, but do we feel like they put this together correctly, being the creators and the providers? Are you asking if, if we feel like they cast the movie well? I'm just yeah. curious. Yeah. Well, I mean, they cast themselves, so it's basically going to be a, all right, we did this, we're going to do this. So is that the right thing to do in a situation like this? I think they had a vision yeah. and, you know, they they pursued it. So even though they are the, the filmmakers, per se, there's nothing wrong with them also being the people in front of the camera. And they're living these parts, these you know, these, these emblematic parts that that exemplify something very strong for their generation. And I think that uh, they uh, I don't think they're necessarily saving money by casting themselves. I think that they had themselves in mind from the beginning, if I'm not mistaken. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think they look and feel the part. I just find, you know, Billy's part a little bit more grating. I think Wyatt is is just perfect. His his vibe his whole gestalt, his his approach and his kind of laconic mannerism is a perfect counterweight to somebody like Billy. I like that Billy has the long hair and, you know, that the the funky hat and, you know, the, the get up. Yeah, the stash, the get up that he's wearing everything. And uh, Wyatt, who's also called Captain America in this movie, you know, he, he has a different look. He has the, you know, mutton chop sideburns and the you know really cool looking glasses but he doesn't have as much facial hair and you know he's wearing these leather pants his motorcycle is really cool looking it's got that teardrop gas tank so yeah i think i think that the the look and the what they bring to those parts is really really good and the, as far as the overall cast i mean I think it's really well cast. You have Kieran Black, who's a really good actress, especially for the late 60s, early 70s, in a small part. But, you know, she does that part really well. Um, you have Tony Basil, <laughs> who, if you remember, she's famous for the Mickey video. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Mickey, you're so fine. You're so fine. You blow my Excellent. mind. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's not uh, a very deep part or anything like that. Um, she's a pretty face, et cetera. But, 
you know, you've got some other roles. You've got the uh, hippie hitchhiker they pick up. I think he looks the part really well. But I, what I really yeah, love Lucas is how, Yeah, that's right. I, what I really love from from what I gathered, um, they they just decided to cast locals, non-actors who yeah. were like in the towns they were filming in. And you, you just get a feel that this is real life. Like those rednecks in the cafe, those are real locals of that town. And basically, Hopper told them, OK, here's your motivation, if you will. Uh, we've, you know, raped some local girl and you you see us coming into town. What are you going to say about us? Well, of course, they're jacked up from the start with that kind of a setup. Right. right. Um, uh, so as far as casting, I think like everybody looks the part just perfectly like the, the yokels who blow them away in the pickup truck. They, they absolutely look like, you know, redneck yokels. They would blow <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I was like, yeah, I can see them shooting somebody. And all those people, on, how, on the, all those people on the hippie commune. Yeah. I mean, few of them are actors and I don't know much about all of them cast, but like they, they just, everybody looks like they belong there. I remember thinking uh, when I watched this, that it looked like they went to the production studio next door where they were doing some over the top Cleopatra or something and just said, you, you and you, we need you for this part in this movie. Just oh, yeah. to be the mummers. Yeah. Do we need to change? Nope. Keep right. wearing exactly what yep. you're wearing. In fact, you can even recite the last three lines you were saying. I just need you to barge in and do it and then leave. Yep. Way, way, way off Broadway. <laughs> they right. did right. do an amazing job of being annoying. Like that's that's how I'd imagine a hippie communes mummer group, which is something right. I, I I guess up until this movie, I hadn't really conjured in my mind. But yeah, it's like. The, you were you were very uh, thus being annoying. So kudos to those. I, who I don't know if you gentlemen know who Grizzly. If you ever see or hear of the movie Grizzly Adams starring oh, yeah. Dan Haggerty, I think that's Dan Haggerty at the Commune. Really, the, the bearded oh, guy. Yeah. yeah, I don't even know if he's I, I, in the cast, is no. he? But no, uh, I, I I'm almost positive so. that's Dan Haggerty. That's funny. Yeah, I did see Rip Torn was cast as George initially, Jack Nicholson's character. But then Dennis Hopper pulled a knife on him on set, and so Rip Torn pieced out, and they wound up suing, suing each other for a libel. Rip Torn won because Hopper said it it never happened, Rip Torn won. I don't know what that indicates. Maybe enough people said, oh, yeah, this actually did happen. But, I think it indicates, and there's other stories, that Hopper is somewhat of a douche. Yes. Um, like he, they, like I, uh, Fonda wanted to uh, enlist Crosby, Stills, and Nash to do a, a soundtrack for the movie. And the testament says here that Hopper told him to get the f out. Like, nope, we don't. And if you come back in the studio, I'm going to mess you up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He called them limousine riding. I can't even remember, but it was basically, hey, they don't understand this culture. I like Crosby, Stills and Nash. I 100 uh, percent believe that like Dennis Hopper has always seemed like that kind of guy to me. Like he, he was that generations, this dude's difficult to work with, super erratic kind of thing. And I felt like watching this movie, I was like, yeah, I bet all that's true. <laughs> so, uh, we, we've touched on some of this stuff already, so I don't want to, you know, really, really hammer it down, but, uh, let's talk a little bit about the film creation here. So you got three guys put their heads together, write a script for it. You have a lot of impromptu stuff. We have a lot of just grabbing people off the street to act in it. Do you guys think, and I'm, I'm not trying to put ideas in your head, but 
do you think that the way they went about making this movie is indicative of the movie itself? Watching this movie before I even saw any of the trivia, read through the IMDb things or went through the Wikipedia, it's like this feels like a story that they're making up as they go along. It's kind mm-hmm. of a we visit this location and then this happened, we visit this location and then this happened. And yeah, turns out that's they did have some form of overarching plot, but a lot of this was filled in as they got there or right. as their their funds allowed them to do. So I mm-hmm. we they talk about ridiculous three, four hour cuts, lost film, things like that. Initially that it was going to be they were stunt stuntmen. And I think that would have been cool and probably could have explained a little bit of Captain America and why he was wearing that jacket and things like that. But I don't know if uh, Quentin Tarantino could have done his uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, though, <laughs> which would have been the same year, 1969. He would have been accused of plagiarism. Hey, two stuntmen on a road trip. What's what's going on here, Quentin? <laughs> anyway, you know, I, I I'm not a fan, by and large, of remakes of something. But I tell you what, I would welcome a director like Tarantino. I'm not going to say Tarantino because I don't think he would ever do a remake, but someone with an idea on modernizing the idea of Easy Rider to get a hold of this and make something similar. I I would welcome that because I think the one part of this, this movie that I really identified with is the road trip is the freedom of being on the road. It's something that I fantasize about all the time. Like if I didn't have anything else and I had the money to do it, mm-hmm. I would love to just stay on the move. Like, it's just such a nomad different time land. though. Right. Like, non-forced nomad land, basically. Yeah. yeah, this is late sixties. As your resident horror fan, current day, <laughs> please do not hitchhike and or camp outside of redneck angry town bad things happen bad things happen to hitchhikers is yeah. that it's hard to recapture where you can just show up to different people's houses in the middle of the day night whatever they'd be like yeah come on in it's fine you certainly will not kill me that doesn't happen anymore <laughs> i just that don't think true. you could remake this movie guys I, I i don't know i think it's it's definitely lightning in a bottle for its time period I think it speaks to that generation and their disaffection with authority and suspicion with the government and, uh, you know, distrust of the establishment. You consider all the cynicism, the mistrust, the pessimism we see directed toward the police, the military, politicians, the American dream in general. Yeah. And, and, and that definitely caught a fire in, in American cinema, this whole vibe. But. But again, how could you remake the movie? I know we're going to talk about a possible recast in a little bit. I have some ideas on who I would envision in these roles. But but again, I, I don't know. I just think it loses so much of its impact if it's removed from its, you know, historical context of the late 60s. You'd have to completely reinvent the reasons and you'd have to reinvent the villains, if you will, like what they're rebelling against. I mean, it would have to be almost like, you think about the schisms in America today, like, I don't know, <laughs> you, you you would have to reframe this completely. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be the counterculture of the 60s. Right. It would have to be something completely different today, which I'm sure we could find a good kind of schism to underpin 
But um, yeah, it wouldn't work for me. I I certainly hope they never do remake Easy Rider. Even if you don't like the movie, I just don't think it would work. I don't think a remake would probably be what happens, but I could see somebody taking the idea for it. Just the, the two guys fed up with things, you know, the, the motorcycle diaries piece of this and, and do something more about like everybody's supposed to settle down and get a job out of college and whatnot. Well, we're not going to do that. So I, I, just something more along those lines. Yeah. Maybe an into the wild kind of off the grid or something like that. But, but again, yeah. those kind of movies have been done and, and removed from the context of why these people were considered rebels in the late 60s and why they're rebelling against the establishment. I just think it loses so much impact. But Yeah, it's worth mentioning they did an Easy Rider 2 back in 2012. It's called The Ride Home. So that's a thing that happened. If you're curious, it holds a 2.8 IMDb rating. So that's exactly <laughs> where you would expect How did they get? How did they get permission to do that? I, I, I saw it on the thing. I didn't realize it was made so much later when yes. I saw it. But um, Well, Dennis Hopper passed away in 2010. So at that point, it may have just, I don't know, fallen out of copyright or whatever. But yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's... Uh, I don't know enough about it. Yeah, I've, I didn't even know it existed, nor do I have any interest in seeing it. It looks like a cash grab where maybe some of the principals had agreed for a paycheck in exchange for, hey, you can use the name or something like that. Uh, yeah, when it's supposed to be a prequel, by the way. It's 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 meant to be a prequel, it says here, to the 1969 film. Oh. Mm. Well, God, I'd hope so. I mean, I don't know how you – does it be like a ride back home in heaven? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just different, different cast, different. <laughs> yeah, sequel would be a. Anyway, I was curious when when uh, Fonda died, just to see if it was truly like nobody had their hand on the on this no button any longer. Mm. Or I could see, I could also see Fonda being like, ah, take that, Dennis Hopper. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Either way. Uh, so speaking of Dennis Hopper, let's talk about his role as the director of this film. Are we? You know, we've talked about what we like about it, what we don't like about it. What about his directing style? You know, he did other stuff like American Dreamer, The Last Movie, The Trip, on up to, you know, Chasers in 1994. I actually haven't seen very many movies he's directed. So how are we feeling? Obviously, this is the most popular and most successful. But how are we feeling about him as a director overall? Well, if you're asking my opinion, I don't think really you can point to any kind of auteurist theory that applies to Dennis Hopper. Now, I'm going to plead ignorance here because I haven't really seen any of his subsequent movies, so I can't really make comparisons or point to any, you know, uh, patterns or, or techniques or approaches that are similar across his works. And I'm not trying to denigrate him as a filmmaker at all. It's just that I don't think there is much of a style. I think, as you were saying earlier, just my opinion, I think that they were kind of making this up as they went along in a lot of ways. They had a screenplay. You know, they, they had an idea. But I think that, you know, they they just kind of let the movie ramble and, and take shape organically in a lot of ways. And a lot of the heavy lifting is done by somebody like Laszlo Kovacs with the with, actually is amazing outdoor cinematography. And I think that they were fortuitous in the locations that they choose to shot in. When you see that, you know, the long LSD trip and the, you know, New Orleans cemetery, 
which feels like it goes on forever. Yes. Um, and it probably went on forever and a day in the extended cut that we never saw. But it just tells me that it, it it's not so much about, you know, he's trying to flex his directorial muscles and show off like as a showman of, hey, I've got all these really snazzy techniques and gimmicks and things like that. The only gimmicky thing, like I said, is the flash forwarding technique, which isn't replicated in any other movie I've seen. I give him kudos for attempting that to, uh, you know, that approach to segueing between scenes. It's something we've not seen before. I'm glad I don't see it in any other movies because uh, it's, it, it can be great. It can be kind of annoying after a while, but I think that they were trying to capture the whole drug experience and just kind of the loosey goosey. Let's go on a road trip and explore America. And, it's kind of predictable what, even if you've never seen this movie and you see the long hairs, you know, they, they pull into, you know, redneck America. Well, what do you think is going to happen? Some bad stuff. Right. They're going to get singled out. They're going to be castigated and so forth. But nevertheless, I, I, I think that that kind of guerrilla approach to filmmaking where it's almost a little bit of a cinema variety or neorealism, it, it serves the movie well. It has a structured plot. They follow it. But they're also, as I said, definitely kind of making things up as they go along. And it still works for me, even if you can kind of foresee what's going to happen. Yeah, it's the LSD scene you you mentioned. It, that's the first time in this movie that I was really able to say, OK, here's where he's getting some form of style. It It's very reminiscent. In the, a lot of the movies come slightly later, but. Italian cinema, giallo horror, things like that, all the colors of the dark, Dario Argenta. So we we get a lot of that Italian cinema influence for that LSD scene, that stripping the rapid cuts, the spinning. You hear the Apostles' Creed going on in the background. It's just a very trippy experience. So that was an interesting scene. You're, you're right, it did go on for quite a bit. But it is it is meant to represent a bad trip. Yeah. If you recall the advice that the hippie hitchhiker gives them, he says, you know, take this in the right place with the right people. I'm paraphrasing. Yes. And apparently they didn't do that. They took it at the wrong time with the wrong people, presumably. And they got a bad trip out of it because that does not feel like a pleasant LSD experience. Right. Wyatt talking to his dead mother. Yeah. It's meant to feel like meandering and, and scary and, you know, kind of alien, I think, to especially somebody like myself who's never tried, even tried acid or LSD. Yeah. I mean, if anything, if they're if they're trying to espouse the whole drug lifestyle to me, this is a cautionary tale. Hey, don't take the bad drugs, man. They, they're yeah. going to mess you up. But I don't think it's it's so much on the surface of uh, about drugs or, or a cautionary tale or anything like that. I think that. The drugs are a backdrop to what's what's going on with this generation. But, yeah, to the main point about the filmmaking style, that LSD scene, there is a little bit of creativity just in terms of how they edit that, the different shots they use, the soundscape they create, which is very surreal and kind of unnerving. So I, I admire that scene a lot. You know, it's just it's it's an uncomfortable se sequence that I, you know, I wouldn't want to revisit time and again. But um, it, it does speak to, hey, Dennis Hopper does have some chops as a filmmaker. And if there is any style in his kind of approach 
as as a as an artist then you see it in a sequence like that maybe absolutely now one of the things that i think that this movie greatly succeeded on like i feel like they i never lost touch with the feeling uh is the atmosphere in this film Mm. so chad tell me a little bit about how the atmosphere uh worked or didn't work for you in this film yeah it's very strange i probably could have watched an hour and a half movie of just them cruising across the countryside they really do a fantastic job of just capturing the beauty of America. And totally. it, it's set against this backdrop of rednecks and drugs and ugliness. And But as we're going, we're traveling from place to place, New Mexico, Arizona, Louisiana. You just see gorgeous dunes, gorgeous sunrises, things like mm-hmm. that. Yes. Honestly, we'll talk about it a little bit later the i'm into the music so we've got great cruising music while we're doing it i had a great time this was my favorite part of the movie was just watching those scenes that's no small point when you talk about atmosphere i completely agree with everything you said i believe that the you know amazing outdoor cinematography they captured just the vistas the majestic you know you know landscapes that they pass the uh, chromatic sunsets that we witness with them yeah they're they're really memorable and they they set the tone for this being a road movie and them being wild creatures you know out on their own adventure and the soundtrack is crucial it's huge can you imagine this movie without you know pop music of the time and these are these are big memorable classic rock songs you know you have born to be wild which is a staple of classic rock radio. Oh yeah. You have yep. The Weight by the band, one of the best songs ever written. You have a Jimi Hendrix song, If Six Was Nine. You have The Pusher by Steppenwolf. You have songs by The Birds. And on and on and on. And and some of the songs are more obscure, but like that song, I don't even know what it's called or the title. But when Jack Nicholson joins them and he's wearing the football helmet, I want to be a bird, I think is the name of the song or something. It's just perfect. It's it adds this comedic light tone and the vignetting that the montaging that they're able to do with the music and the imagery is astounding. It's great stuff. And you have to keep in mind that this wasn't the first movie to lace its soundtrack with pop music. You could argue that. You know, uh, The Graduate before it, uh, uh, two years earlier, was arguably the first to do that. But this was an important one. This was really, really important. A lot of, and, and The Graduate was strictly Simon and Garfunkel. This is a smattering of different artists of that period. And these are important artistic voices. There's not just obscure, you know, rock and rollers. There's a, a lot of really, really good artists represented in that soundtrack. So as we talk about the soundtrack, uh, just for another second here, mm-hmm. I want opinions. Do we think that the mix of varying hits of the time mm-hmm. outweigh a possible Crosby, Stills, Nash solo done soundtrack? Well, Obviously, we'll ne- we've never heard it, so we don't yeah. know. But we'll never but know, do right? Do you think? Do you think? What, what what's the better than or uh, uh, greater than or less than in your mind on what it could have or could not have been, Chad? I mean, I really enjoy Crosby, Stills and Nash, but 
I can't imagine this movie without Steppenwolf, especially Born to be Wild. But, you know, there there's some weird transitions here. Don't Bogart me, the fraternity of man. It cuts weirdly into If Six Was Nine from Jimi Hendrix. But I I love all of these songs. Bob Dylan's It's All Right Ma, if you listen to that, it's about a mother that commits suicide. That song, uh, Bob Dylan wasn't going to give that song to Peter Fonda, but Peter Fonda is doing the speech to that statue, and he, he calls the statue Mother. That was something Dennis Hopper pushed. Peter Fonda's mom committed suicide. So he was being pushed by Dennis Hopper to talk to the statue like it was his mom and just get out those feelings and it convinced bob dylan okay well you can have this song because of peter fonda's performance so there's a lot of touching things uh, in between just fun cruising songs like born to be wild totally i'd agree, agree with all of that yeah i mean crosby sills and nash i mean they're masters of their craft right and this would have been arguably if they wrote the soundtrack to this probably preceding their debut album you know they were capable of great, great music, but again, I just can't envision with my ears, if you will, um, a different approach to the score because I think you need the, the the variety of different musical voices in this this film. So emblematic of the time. Again, we'll never know, but I I, I don't know. I, I I think it's an unimpeachable soundtrack. I think that's one of the strongest yes. elements of the movie. As a uh, as a, a audiophile, I feel like I'm constantly haunted by the what could have been, whether it was a promising artist who dies unexpectedly, or something that you know falls in your lap like this, where you're forced to think about what other options could there have been. I hate not knowing. I always want my cake and eat it too. Like if you could have a Crosby, Stills and Nash score if you will while still using pop culture songs for this the movie like just have it interweaved or have the stills and uh or having them do the the credits or something like that of course they'd never pay for both so i understand why but man just the idea of letting the three of them take a crack at this is alluring by the way as a bit of trivia and a tangent very briefly if you'll indulge me CSN was actually commissioned to write a movie soundtrack, and they did create it, but it was never used in the movie. And that's War Games, the Matthew Broderick film from 1982, I want to say. We covered that. Yeah, Yeah. they wrote the soundtrack for that movie, which is just a weird marriage. Like, I can't picture CSN. um, Basically the opposite of this movie. (laughs) But it's out there. So maybe it gives you a little flavor of, okay, here, we want you to write the score to a movie. What would you do? Well, go look it up. It's out there. You You can seek it out. Um, It may not be their best work, but it's an interesting experiment. I think if you told three guys like that, you're writing a soundtrack to two guys take a motorcycle trip across America on drugs, Mm -hmm. somehow the inspiration for that score ends up being better than there's a kid who almost starts World War Three. Yeah, but has to win a video game. Yeah, but he has to win a video game. But yeah, I don't know. I, I was I was very. I watched most of the film uh, with my in-laws and wife. My wife will kill me if I don't add that she thought this movie was boring as hell and she'd never watch it again. (laughs) She should try the Dennis Hopper three-hour and 40-minute cut. 
she uh, uh, has opinions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, watching, yeah, but why, watching... does it, why doesn't she tell us how she really feels? Right. <laughs> uh, she had, she was actually demanding me turn it off at one point, and she's like, "Can't you just tell him you didn't like it and, and that you turned it off?" And I was like, "I could, but I'm not having the same experience you're having." <laughs> so there are redeeming things there, but uh, no, she between this and um, uh, the more recent uh, Chad, I'm blanking out the Australia. Horror movie. The loved ones, yeah. The loved ones, yeah. So those are the last two podcast movies I've had her watch with me. She was far more interested in the loved ones, but she had opinions there too. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, I was I was pretty much hooked on it. Uh, my father-in-law absolutely loves the soundtrack to this movie. I actually had a lot of notes on just the soundtrack piece because I too really enjoyed it. And then y'all dropped that bomb on me about Crosby, Stills and Nash, and I'm like, ah. I want to go to there. So wardrobe, we got to talk about Hopper's get up. Actually, both of their get ups outside of the two of them. How do you feel about the rest of the cast and wardrobe? I want to start with them so we don't just spend the whole time on Fonda and Hopper. Chad. Yeah, I, I almost question whether they use costumes, like used what the locals were wearing. It just, it fit right in. It does. It makes me laugh that they weren't allowed to film at the one hippie commune. Like they said, there's no recording devices, so you've got to you've got to film a, a fake commune some you somewhere else. That makes me laugh, and I I agree with you that they probably did say, oh, you're filming an Egyptian pyramid period piece. Come on, right on over. Let's do a a hippie film. I I, I need three of you right now. Do yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah, but everything else, I I like Jack Nicholson's suit. I thought that was pretty fun, and it it sets him apart in the jail cell right away. Of this guy's not in the same normal class as Billy and Wyatt, so that it was cool to see his interaction with the the two policemen and and them treating him differently right away. And oh, I know your dad, and it's just this different. Here's some aspirin. Yeah. Yeah. Can I get some aspirin for my friends? Yep. All of that. Or cigarettes. So I I enjoyed all the costumes. They all fit, fit right in. I'm not from 1969 America. I'm from 1984. That's when I was born. So, but this is how I would imagine it. I, um, I feel like Jack Nicholson's suit in the jail cell has followed him his entire career. (laughs) I feel like I saw the genesis of Jack Nicholson in a suit. And I feel like I've seen that same suit on him in so many movies afterward. I don't know if you guys got that vibe at all, but as soon as he was introduced, I was like, it's the same damn suit. (laughs) He looks great in it. So, I mean, uh, he does. He wears the heck out of it. I just I think that that style like that, it not only launched Nicholson, but it launched a Nicholson style, I guess is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, although his movies that followed this, he wears he, he, a variety of different kinds of characters where you're not going to see him wearing a suit. Certainly five easy pieces, sure. arguably his second greatest performance ever, which immediately followed this movie. I mean, yeah, I mean, he's he's definitely wearing 
clothes of the time and a variety of them. The last detail, I mean, he's a sailor and uh, <laughs> he even goes shirtless for some of that movie. So Jack Nicholson is just a renaissance man. What can I say? He's he's amazing in every role I've ever seen him in. But as far as the question of uh, costumes and so forth, I don't think much about it. The wardrobe of the movie, although I would say that the most kind of symbolic of the, the era is not the look of necessarily Wyatt or Billy. It's the hitchhiker. It's the bandana wearing hitchhiker. He he looks like a hippie to me. He looks like sure. he fits right in that milieu. And even if that's central casting, hey, put this costume on. I think that look nails what 1969 is all about, brother. I think I yeah. I mean, I agree with that. I think that Hopper Hopper had this thing going on with the bandana and the mustache, and I, honestly, he looks like Stills through most of this. So, Stephen right. Stills from Crosby, Stills and Nash. Yeah, he's the one with the the, the mustache and the long hair, isn't he? No, that's David Crosby. Yeah, uh, you're right. Just, you're right about this because um, if you recall the birds, they were called the uh, American Beatles, the birds. Oh yeah. Roger McGuinn actually and also David Crosby, who were both in that movie. I'm sorry, both in the band, the Birds. Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper, retrospect, uh, respectively, I should say, w- were uh, easily compared to McGuinn and Crosby in terms of their look. Mm. So I don't know if that was coincidence yeah. or intentional. I didn't read anything that verified that, but yeah, Dennis Hopper's definitely trying to look like David Crosby. It does make me laugh how much uh, Wyatt's costume, that Captain America flag, it apparently got Peter Fonda pulled over a lot. He said between that and the American flag on his tank, which all of that to me today, you know, those people aren't the ones getting pulled over, but uh, the American flag symbol on the on the motorcycle and on his jacket, apparently signaled trouble and that he was a troublemaker back then. Well, I think it's the, the clash of you have a hippie, you know, who's who's boarding around an American flag. Right. And so the flag waving jingoistic rednecks would take offense to something like that. Not only is he a northerner, if you will, a, a Yankee <laughs> Where are you using that flag for boy? Yankee queer. Right. right. Um, but, he, you know, he's usurping the flag because he's he's not fit to to wear it or use it. You know, he's he's animalistic and in, in his hippiedom is there. You mindset. know what we should do? We should shoot him out our truck window. Right. Yeah. What is with uh, the rednecks here? Like, <laughs> I grew up in West Virginia, man. There are rednecks there are plenty, but uh, I've never seen one pull up by a motorcycle and just point a shotgun to scare them a little. Like, rednecks do some crazy things, but that was a bit much. Yeah, I guess this is probably a timely thing. Uh, maybe things like this really did happen back then. Dukes of Hazard style. Yeah. I thought that was a bit much. I, I didn't... Ex- so I, I didn't read anything on the movie before I watched it because I figured it had been exhaustively publicized. So, yeah, that ending was complete shock to me. I was like, oh, that just happened. Right. And then when they said, all right, well, we better turn around. I'm like, oh, they're going to go back and help. <laughs> no, like, no maybe he didn't mean to sh- like maybe he didn't mean to shoot him. Nope. He definitely meant to shoot him. <laughs> right. Well, like right, I said, then. though, if you. If you really pay attention to what they're talking about in the movie, and this this is easy to miss on the first viewing, granted. 
it it all kind of fits together because this movie is is not a very kind of take it literally story or movie. It's it's meant to be symbolic in many many ways. So I'd love to get into this a little further in terms of interpreting the meanings and the messages of Easy Rider, but I don't want to, you know, deviate from your outline here. So no, that's, that's let me fine. know if and when you think a good time for that is. But, yeah, if you want to continue with your outline. Yeah, let's talk about it. All right. So I'm not promising, gentlemen, that I'm going to fill in every blank you have, every question you have, or, or make the movie completely make sense. But here are some interpretations of the film. Um, so. What do we know about Easy Rider? Well, it's a time capsule, right? It's a time capsule of a movie that depicts what was in the public consciousness in the late 60s. You have to remember, of course, it's a time when the counterculture and the young generation were searching for answers. They're searching for respect. They're searching for power, right? They didn't have a lot of power, even though they could demonstrate in in mass quantities. They really weren't getting much traction. And this film spoke to them in ways that no previous movie had spoke to them because it presented characters and themes that represented their generation and that generation's hopes and dreams. It's also one of the first examples of a film that caters to audiences who had grown increasingly dissatisfied with and suspicious of, you know, the government, of the establishment. I want to put myself in the shoes of somebody from that generation who was seeing this movie for the first time in the late 60s and what this movie would have meant to that. That still kind of makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up because I like to think about things like that. I like to think about how this would have been received on its first watch by somebody that the movie spoke to. You know what I mean? Yes, it's a wildly experimental film. We've talked about this. Some of Hopper's choices, some of uh, Fonda's choices, the editing style, the staggerific flash forwarding can be good and bad, perhaps. But it's a unique movie. It's not a cookie-cutter production that colored within the lines, right? I mean, it's it's a very unique work of art. There's no movie quite like Easy Rider. I really can't... I mean, yeah, there are hippie films. There are biker films, certainly. There's lots of exploitation cheapies at the drive-in circuit in the late 60s and the early 70s that rode the coattails of this movie. But there's no movie quite like Easy Rider, except perhaps Midnight Cowboy, which is the same year. And it's also a buddy picture with two guys who are kind of anti-establishment. But that's also a very different approach. It's not a road movie per se. So I think what's important to keep in mind is that it's a revisionist Western. Okay, it is a Western. And it's a Western that usurps and updates the classic Hollywood Western films. You think about how Billy and Wyatt are named after Western icons, right? Wyatt or Billy the Kid. And yet, what do we see? They they look and they act so differently than those real-life characters from bygone Western days. Instead of riding horses, they drive motorcycles. Instead of heading west, as you'd expect a cowboy to do, they're traveling east. And that's kind of a bad omen. That's antithetical to the direction you'd expect of a Western hero, right? And then you think about what messages or themes are endemic to the movie. I think the crucial one is what Jack Nicholson's character is talking about when he says something like, um, you know, what what they what how they scare other people. He says it's real hard to be free when you're bought and sold in the marketplace. George Hansen says, right? And then he also says, yeah, they'll talk to you and talk to you uh, talk to you about individual freedom, but when they see a free individual, it's going to scare them. So it's what they represent that scares them. And what they represent is what it means to be a truly free American, 
in an ideal sense. Which begs the question, is it possible to be a truly free American? I don't know, but they're trying to kind of give a morality play, if you will, in the sense of, look, here, here's how we envision this going, going to happen. I mean, it's an interesting point and one that is easily missed on me when you made the point of they're riding east as a portent of bad things to come. So that that's something that could be easily missed. And, yeah, I definitely caught the Western themes. Yes. But it, it's it's helpful to think about that. I still I struggle with the Western genre in general. Brian's more of our our Western fan here. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a few, but we go in different directions. I like the Silverados. He likes the Tombstones. <laughs> <laughs> I I want more fun and less depressing death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why I always go to John Ford Westerners as my go-to. But everybody's got their own unique tastes and preferences. But the important the important line of the movie to me is what we need to talk about briefly next, which is Wyatt saying we blew it. What yeah. the hell is he talking about here? What, what are you talking about, right? Like, if you're seeing the movie for the first time, you hear it up to this point, you're thinking, you know, okay, they're still alive. They've had some scrapes, but they made the big drug deal. They've got all this money. And he says, we blew it. What's he talking about? Well, I think this is getting into the death of the 1960s ideal. So the counterculture and the hippie generation, what were they yearning for? Well, independence from the establishment from corporate America, from the liberty, you know, the liberty to be able to live their uh, alternative lifestyles. They wanted that. They wanted to practice free love and peace while expressing themselves without, I guess you'd say, fear of reprisal. But we see how that turns out for Billy and Wyatt. Not so good. So the line, we blew it, kind of reinforces this. You can interpret this as what? As a confession that Billy and Wyatt have sold out their values in their idealism, by making the drug score, by valuing money and possessions, by conforming to, let's call it a capitalist ethos in that regard, while also failing to truly feel free, as George was talking about. I was watching a uh, bonus feature on the Blu-ray for this movie in which uh, Hopper said that the film's main message was that freedom comes with great responsibility and that Billy and Wyatt didn't live up to that responsibility. So that's a way to interpret the we blew it line. Like, okay, they're trying to live this free, you know, peace and love, hippie lifestyle, right? But they bought into corporate America in the sense that, you know, if you recall, Billy, what does he say? Like, oh, we we made it, man. We're going to go retire in Florida and live easy street. But is that really what the, you know, free kind of counterculture ethos was about? No, that was that's selling out. Right. And that's lost 52 years later, perhaps. <laughs> like, It's a little hard for maybe modern audiences to get their head around. Like, what's so bad about that? Like, you need money and what's a big deal? But that would have been a big deal to, to viewers in the late 60s. Recall how earlier Wyatt, he throws away his his uh, wristwatch, right? What does that suggest? Mm-hmm. Maybe that he will not be bound by the rules and restrictions of time. And while we might cheer this rebellious act of, I guess, nonconformity, we see examples as the movie progresses of how Wyatt and his friends, they end up in the wrong place at the wrong time, ultimately leading to their deaths. It's also possible that these men are too far ahead of their time to be accepted, 
or that it's impossible not to live a life free of the boundaries of time, schedules, and temporal constraints. So time and its and its kind of trappings are a, a message unto themselves. You hear lines like, do your own thing in your own time. The time's running out. I'm hip about time. So I don't think this is just happen chance. I think they're onto something there just about, you know, being bound by by the conventions of, of time and, and temporal constraints. That was it. I just wanted to share with your listeners a little bit about what I learned in doing some research on the movie, talking to Barna Donovan and uh, listening to the you know commentaries on the Blu-ray and all that kind of stuff. So um, just wanted to share. Sure. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's move into some superlatives. I'm going to kick this off with MVP. Chad, who do you think was most important in this film? I went with the soundtrack. Uh, the soundtrack and really the background of America, I think it's one of the best I've ever heard, and it made the film so much more enjoyable. I will actually ditto that. Eric, what, did, what was your thought? It's hard to argue uh, against the soundtrack, but neck and neck is Jack Nicholson's performance. He mm-hmm. steals, the, steals the show. They're different animals, but yeah, I'll give the nod to the soundtrack, sure. Mm-hmm. How about supporting, Chad? Jack Nicholson's the obvious answer here. As George, he's he's the most interesting character, and he's the one that I wanted to stay longer. Two for two. Eric? Yeah, totally agree. I'm not going to say Phil Spector as the, the man who makes the connection, <laughs> the drug deal connection. <laughs> you know, that is the producer, Phil Spector, in that limo. No, Excellent. not him. It's, it's Nicholson, absolutely. All right. And uh, Hidden Gem. What's your hidden gem, Chad? I had to go with Tony Basil as Mary. We've already mentioned it, but the person that winds up singing Hey Mickey, it's really funny to see her in part here as a prostitute. Yeah, I I went the other direction with it, the other prostitute. I mean, I went with Karen Black. Um, I thought it was super interesting how seamlessly they paired off, it seemed, like, Hopper's character of Billy just said, uh, oh, you seem quiet. You should go with him. You seem a little wilder. You should go with me. Yeah. Yeah. And Tony Basil so did I not just, I, I, into it at all. That was an awkward scene. Right. Eric, what was yours? Yeah, I'm going to echo what you guys said. I've got, I really like hearing Black's performance here. I also like, if I'm getting the actor's name correct, is it Robert Walker as Jack, the guy who does the uh, Tai Chi, he's he's the guy who gives the prayer at the commune. He really looks that part, too, uh, to me. Yeah. It's a small, yeah, you know, kind of overlooked little role, but it, uh, it he, he, he acquits himself really nicely there. All right, so I, I'm going to have a very... Uh... I, I feel like I might get burned at the stake for my next uh, piece here, but recast. Chad, who are you recasting and why? I'm recasting Dennis Hopper. I, <laughs> I'm i going with Harvey Keitel. I think Hopper was – I don't think he was bad. Are until, you freaking serious? Uh, or did we both do it? Uh, that's oh, what. my – all right, no, keep going. Just, no, keep talking. <laughs> all right. I, I didn't think he was bad in the role, but he's such an insane jerk to everyone. I mean, Nicholson said we were all ready to kill each other. Tony Basil said uh, she said it was just insane shooting. So I feel like Dennis Hopper's kind of a problem here, and I'm recasting him. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Eric? 
Yeah, I really, really put myself uh, in the shoes of, let's say, a producer, a filmmaker, a film studio. And if I were, if I were to commit the hubris of remaking this movie, who would I want to cast in the three main roles of Wyatt, Billy, and George? And uh, I thought long and hard about it, and I'm I'm going to go. So I, I looked up the ages of uh, Hopper and um, Fonda at the time, and actually they're older than I thought they were. I think uh, Hopper is mid-30s, and mm-hmm. Fonda is 29 when they make this movie. So even though, like, you think of hippies in the 60s, the 69, like, young 20s or something like that, these guys are actually a bit older. And they don't have to give their age as characters, but... You know, I kind of went with that vibe in terms of casting a little older, at least for one of the parts. So for Wyatt, I uh, I'm doing a kind of a a radical rethinking here. I would cast uh, Timothy Chalamet, and he's in everything. <laughs> yeah, as, and for, uh, oh, for he, Billy, he's a popular piece right now. Absolutely, he's popular, so he'd be a box office draw, right? And for Billy. I'm reframing the whole, okay, what are they rebelling against kind of a thing? And I'm making this more of a racial kind of a deal. I'm casting Michael B. Jordan. You might recall him from uh, some of the Marvel movies and from Creed. So uh, I think he'd be uh, – and Billy is kind of a bit of a, a, a tough nugget in this movie. And I think Michael B. Jordan kind of uh, looks a little bit rugged, perhaps on a chopper or something like that. <laughs> so, um Yeah. Sure. I think that would be an interesting pairing. And then for the Nicholson role, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, I think he'd be perfect. He's starting to look like Jack Nicholson, so yeah. <laughs> or, or alternatively, Robert Downey Jr. I alternated between those two, but I think they'd, they'd both add a lot of humor to that role. This probably is going to be a first in, in Retro Movie Roundtable. I don't think that we've ever recast with the same character before, <laughs> but... Um, one of one of the things that I, I wouldn't say it bothered me. I understood the need for the dichotomy, yeah. But um, I just wanted a little bit more of Dennis Hopper in Peter Fonda, and a little bit more of Peter Fonda in Dennis Hopper to make them gel a little bit more. And what I came up for it was if I recast both of them, it mm-hmm. was David Bowie as Peter Fonda's character, and then Harvey Keitel as Hopper's. Interesting. <laughs> Although that's not possible I, because Bowie's gone, and <laughs> I don't think Kaitel's still with us, right? But he's pretty old. Well, this is back in the no, day. No, it's not for today. I'm saying. Like, oh, you're saying time, if the movie was never made, but it was uh, back in 1969, who would you have cast at the time? Right. Mm-hmm. Ah, if I knew that was the parameter, then I would have rethought. Rethink- it doesn't need to be. Oh, okay. it doesn't need to be at all. Yeah. We we jump time frames. I mean, mm-hmm. you can go someone live in the 80s. It's, there's no restraints to this. Um, I was just trying first off. I felt like there needed to be a musician in this movie. I don't know if it was just because it was so soundtrack driven, but I did feel like there needed to be a barrier breaker musician in the film. And that's where the David Bowie came from because Mm. David Bowie can play that stoic role, but he can also add that flair where if you saw David Bowie walk out in a you know leather motorcycle outfit with American flags all over it, you would yeah. be shocked. My only issue with casting Bowie would be that if this is a movie about intrinsically about Americans, I understand sure. yeah. actors can transcend their their dialects and their you know their their background or whatever. But 
I don't know. I don't know if people would buy that he's part of the counterculture. Uh, I don't the American counterculture. How about uh, let's talk about about, uh, best shot here, Chad. For me, it was when they're riding past the dunes after they first leave the gas station. It's just really beautiful. There's so many scenic shots, but that one happened to be my favorite. Excellent. Eric. Yeah, it's a tie between the fantastic sunset in the American Southwest where they're climbing up the rocks and the final shot of the fiery motorcycle from the bird's eye view is an astounding shot. Gotcha. Yeah, definitely. I uh, I personally really liked that initial point where they decide to, to go out into Mardi Gras and it's in that sepia tone, gritty uh, film style. I, I just really enjoyed the segue piece of like, let's, let's go out, let's go out into this. I'm a huge New Orleans Mardi Gras fan. I, I joke all the time with my wife. I was like, I really wish that when we had done it, like I wanted to see some more weird stuff. Like I didn't get to see that, you know, the voodoo graveyard piece. I'm watching this and I'm like that, that right there. Like that's, that's what I wanted. Anyway, I I just, I really enjoyed that whole piece of the movie. Uh, How about uh, let's expand on that a little bit more. So best scene, Eric. The campfire scene with Jack Nicholson. There, now there's two scenes actually. Uh, I think the scene where they're talking about the personal freedoms and what the uh, establishment is afraid of. It's pivotal to understanding the whole movie and appreciating the the entire message here. So to me, it's it's the most relevant, the most resonant, and uh, yeah, my favorite. Excellent. Uh, two for two on that, by the way. Uh, Chad. Mine's when George is on the back of the bikes. He's just kind of hamming it up, being Jack Nicholson, while the song Wanna Be a Bird is playing in the background. There's just some carefree joy in that scene for me. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Interesting that everybody chose a Jack Nicholson scene, right? So it says a lot about I, how I, important I, he was to the movie. I completely agree. I, I think that... that had Nicholson not been Nicholson in this movie, I would have had a lot harder time with it. <laughs> Best wardrobe or makeup moment, Chad? I think Fonda's jacket is crucial to his character. He's called Captain America. He's got the American flag. So for me, you can see the interactions he had with the cops uh, in real life because of it. I think it's an important statement for the period piece. Excellent. Eric? Ditto. You said it best. I totally agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think that's three for three than that. How about change one thing, Jed? I'm not sure I can change the ending since it's kind of the point of this movie, even though I didn't care about it. I I guess if I'm changing something, it's going to be spend less time at the commune. It winds up being that they only spent a day, but it kind of felt like they spent a week there for me, and it just dragged on a bit. Eric? Yeah, unfortunately, Billy's character doesn't work for me in a lot of the movie. I think Hopper is, you know, he's summoning a muse (laughs) that, that just doesn't work very well. He's... He sounds cliche in some of his lines. He He's acting strangely in others, and I understand it's under the influence of drugs, presumably, with his character. He just, I don't know, uh, he bugs me in a lot of the scenes, so I don't mind Dennis Hopper himself being cast in that role. It's just, I don't think he acts it very well. So I, 
I don't know. I would change some of his lines of dialogue. I would have him be a little less sexually aggressive, let's say, at the commune. His character becomes a little more irredeemable. So, I don't know. He just kind of rubs me the wrong way. I guess I would change some of his uh, lines and uh, motivations, perhaps. I'd agree with that. Uh, my my biggest piece on this was I think it did need a little bit more rigid scripting. Um, I'm all fine with keeping impromptu lines. Uh, mm-hmm. That's what editing is for. <laughs> so you can have the cake and eat it too, or you can have you know a, a solid script uh, to guide you, and then when those gems fall in, you keep them. But to rely solely on improvisation throughout a film, I thought this needed a little bit more structure. Yeah, definitely could have benefited. I agree. Which brings us to best quote. And I have a feeling that at least two of us have the same thing on this one. So we'll go with Eric first on this one. Yeah, I quoted Nicholson earlier, but there's actually several lines. I don't think I quoted these two before, and I'll kind of put them in in kind of a pair, if you will. They're in the same scene. It's just that they're not consecutive quotes. He says, you know, this used to be a hell of a good country. I can't understand what's gone wrong with it, but I would pair that also with they're not scared of you. They're scared of what you represent to them. And then he goes on to explain it. But those two quotes kind of in tandem are a perfect kind of encapsulation of what the movie's about. Yep. Chad? Oh, I've got a helmet. As Jack Nicholson <laughs> brings out the Notre Dame style helmet. Funniest line of the movie, for sure. Uh, yeah, I went with uh, Jack Nicholson's monologue. I, I think that is uh, of great portent even now. Yeah, that's wild. All right. So that concludes our episode on Easy Rider. Uh, Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, tell us uh, one more time where we can uh, find you. Yeah, so uh, the podcast is called Cineversary, and uh, you can find it on Anchor, anchor.fm slash Cineversary, and that's spelled C-I-N-E-V-E-R-S-A-R-Y. You can also check out our Cineverse group blog, which includes uh, recordings of our group discussions. It includes uh, a lot of long-form essays that I've done and uh, some other stuff that you'll find of interest as a, as a cinephile. And that is uh, cineversegroup.com. Very good. All right. All right. Time to give it a rating. Chad, from zero to five using half part increments that I don't agree with. How would you rate easy rider? Well, I'm going to use one of those half stars. I'm giving it a two and a half star. I feel like this film is extremely important and it's an important statement on the 1960s culture, but we're in 2021, almost 2022 by the time this episode is released. So much has changed. So much of what it's criticizing has changed. A lot of the movie feels meandering, and I think they were going for pointless at some point as as their criticism. And uh, I think it's important to see, but I'm I didn't particularly enjoy it. Okay, Eric. Yeah, I mean, I like I was telling Chad earlier, I grade on a curve a little bit. Um, I have to kind of give it its props for its place in movie history. It is an AFI top 100 film of all time. I don't let others, you know, influence my own grading or opinion necessarily, but I do know it's, it's an important, influential, innovative movie. 
that being said, is it a, is it a fun? Is it an entertaining movie? Is it something that I continue to go back to? Not necessarily. It has its flaws. I'd probably place it. Uh, boy, it's it's a really tough call. I'm it's split between the two. Either either a four out of five or a four and a half out of five. So I'll just grade on a curve and give it a four point five out of five. Very nice. All right. Uh, I gave this one a three. I, I think that it's important with um, with a movie with this many or I shouldn't say this many, with, with a message like this to be digested slowly over time, this movie definitely is going to require more reps for me to really find the things that I value in this style of movie in order to make it a, a higher rating. So I'm going to give it a three with a tentative uh, a place for, for growing. Yeah, I think that's fair. I I do think this movie can be appreciated more over time, and my rating probably will grow as I think about it and consider it. It may even, by the time we rank things at the end of the year, it may change. For what it's worth, if you you were to ask me to give this this a grade on the first time I saw it, I probably would have given it about a 2 out of 5. So uh, if it's any consolation, it does get better on repeat viewings. I hope that's true for you. That's true for me. Anyway. I could see it. It's it's one of those things that I did just have a, a one-off time with it, and and there there's more to it than I'm sure I got in the first viewing, and I I actually look forward to watching it more in the future. Yep. All right, so now it comes time to select a movie for next time. Chad, you ready to help me? Yeah. Now for something completely different. Yeah, we're going we're going off the off the rails on this because it's uh, let's just say these aren't uh, gems. AFI top 100? No, no. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're we're going lowbrow for this <laughs> round. All right, option number one: Deep Rising, 1998. A group of heavily armed hijackers. It's almost like hard to, to talk about this <laughs> after the movie we just did. Uh, a group of heavily armed hijackers board a luxury ocean liner in the South Pacific Ocean to loot it, only to battle with a series of large-sized tentacle and man-eating sea creatures <laughs> who had already invaded the ship. <laughs> Option two, Dog Soldiers, 2002. A routine military exercise turns into a werewolf-fueled nightmare in the Scotland wilderness. <laughs> Option three, Battleship 2012. I'm a little embarrassed right now. A fleet of ships is forced to do battle with an armada of unknown origins in order to discover and thwart their destructive goals. We should which one will we be doing? We really need to screen our short list between what movies what we're, we're doing so we don't... Oh, uh, and what's, which one's next? Yes. Yes, we uh, need a couple soft segues to lower expectations. You know what? I'm going with large-sized tentacle man-eating sea creatures with deep rising, right after Easy Rider and statements on culture. We're going to go for counterculture 1998 tentacle. Excellent. Excellent. Interesting back-to-back you got there. If oh, you ever do, gosh. by the way, down, yeah. down the road, you might want to check out Dog Soldiers. It is a pretty good movie. I love that movie, yes. I haven't seen it. That I have seen the other two. Unfortunately, I saw Battleship in theaters. I still don't know what I was thinking. Wait, is that is that uh, the film based on the board game? Yes, Liam. That Liam is correct. Yeah. Yeah, I have a personal rule. I don't watch movies that are based on board games. Oh, Clue's fantastic, though. Go see Clue. <laughs> yeah, you're right about that. Yeah, I, I'll give you that. 
Well, Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Yes. And thank you to all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us at, on Twitter at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free. We invite you to support our show on the Patreon page. That's www.patreon.com slash retromovieroundtable, and that is a forward slash. Any co- contribution is appreciated and will go toward making the show better for you, the listener. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Hallucinations are bad enough, but after a while you learn to cope with things like seeing your dead grandmother crawling up your leg with a knife in her teeth.